Go Ben, don't mess up. Isn't that sweet? Thank you. I do need to acknowledge this morning at 9 a.m. was the first time, and I don't know how many times I've spoken, but this morning at 9 a.m. was the first time that I came out and in that 10 to 20 second period didn't make a mistake, didn't trip over a shoelace, didn't break the music stand, didn't drop my iPad. Things are going good. Okay. So uh, thank you all for being here this morning. Um, to those of you who are attending and hoping you'd meet Josh's replacement, I'm sorry for this womp womp moment of me being up here and being the one that's talking because that's not me. But we have a lot to talk about and I'm really excited for this morning. We are going to be in the book of First Peter. Uh, Virgil started us here last week and uh, he covered a lot and it was really deep. He does a really good job of finding these uncomfortable truths that we don't want to live with, but we need to. But he also does a really good job of finding uplifting truths that we're really happy to walk out of here with. And if you may have thought that as the book went on, maybe it was a little bit lighter, but I think things are actually gonna get a little bit deeper. Um, things might get heavy. So this morning, we are in First Peter chapter two, verses one through 12, and I'm just gonna go ahead and read what we're covering today. So get rid of all evil behavior, be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this living nourishment. Now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly property among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. That is a lot to unpack. And it's a lot more than I have time for in this half hour. I'm barely gonna scratch the surface, but scratch the surface I shall. So those first three verses alone could really just be like one sentence. Um, but as I was writing this and as I was preparing this, I kept getting struck with this one question that I figured I would start off posing. What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the church? If I asked members here what that meant and looked for an answer, 
I doubt I would get the same two answers from two different people because we have different ideas, ideas of it. God did not give us local churches to become country clubs where membership means that we have privileges or we have perks. He placed us in churches to serve, to care for others, to pray for each other, to pray for leadership, to learn, to teach, to give, and in some cases, to be judged, to suffer, to be persecuted, or even to die for our faith, for the sake of the gospel. Is that a good summary of what it means to be the church? What's really impressive to me about what we're spending our time in this morning is that Peter, when he's writing this, um, takes all of these words, all of these Old Testament phrases, uh, which means that they're really, they should be associated with Israel, and he applies them to the church, to the Christian church. If you look at verse 9 alone of what we just covered, you are not like that. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Now, if that was spoken in the first century, people would have known that you were talking about Israel because they were the chosen people among all of the people on earth. He doesn't just say that you have royal priests or that you have a royal priesthood. He's saying you are a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. How can Peter take these words that were meant for God's chosen people, the Israelites, and then apply them to the church, apply them to us. You are a royal priesthood. If I was not, this is gonna be controversial, but stick with me. If I were not a Christian and I read the Old Testament for the first time, I picked up a Bible and I go through the Old Testament, before reading the New Testament, I probably would give it like a so-so review. Because what you have is, first of all, it's an incredible book with so much promise that not only hits the ground running, but it leaves the ground with these lofty aspirations, with lofty ambitions and lofty goals, but then it never quite lands. You'd go through the whole book begging for some kind of closure begging for some kind of finality, begging for God to speak at the end and maybe put an exclamation point at the end of the Old Testament. But then there's a sequel and there's the New Testament. And that's where that exclamation point comes in. When the authors of the gospel go to great lengths, they tell the same story from all of these different accounts to let you know that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, okay? So because everything that Israel was supposed to be, everything that Israel was supposed to do, all of those things finally were completed in and through Jesus Christ. So now Jesus Christ is the holy nation. Virgil spoke last week about the living hope that we have thanks to the resurrection of Jesus and thanks to that resurrection that the church is viewed 
this way through God's eyes. When Jesus enters the picture, everything changes for everyone. We try to talk about this a lot in youth ministry because when we go on our retreats, when we go on our trips, when we go to camp, uh, and we have this incredible week and we see the way that God has moved, not just in the lives of like one student or the lives of a small group or the lives of all of our students that go from Fork, but in the lives of every student and every leader that goes to that camp and everything incredible that happens there. And on that bus ride home, how everyone's filled with joy until you find out that cookout is closed on the way home and you can't go there when everyone is just like filled with this overwhelming sense of God's presence, we have to follow that up with a talk where we basically say, things aren't gonna be like this when you come back because the world is not the way that that retreat is. Things are gonna be different and you're gonna be seen differently. We have to prepare them when they go home and say, because of him, because of what you learned, because of what you believe, and because of how you want to live, you're going to be seen differently. You're going to be judged. You're going to be mocked. You'll be hated because they hated him first. How are you supposed to live out your faith in the face of all of that? Especially if it's a new faith, a fresh faith. What we're discussing today takes it many steps further. Not only mocked, not only judged, not only hated, but persecuted. What are we to do in the face of persecution? And today we are talking about Christians that lived out their faith under severe persecution. None of us have experienced that. No one here has experienced the kind of persecution that I'm talking about. But that kind of persecution still goes on today. You only need to turn on the news to find out what's happening in Afghanistan and hear about how pastors are trying to get out of there and trying to get their congregations out. That persecution still takes place, but it does not take place here. So this is something that we're not all that familiar with. Here's some context. This book, 1 Peter, it was written during the time of Nero. You guys know Nero or are familiar with Nero at all? He's the uh, great grandson of Caesar. He is also the emperor that is responsible for Rome burning to the ground, all right? True story, fun story, not really. Um, he's the emperor that is responsible for the burning of Rome. And when it happened, his own city, he was singing, he was playing music, he was celebrating as his city burned. The city burned for like six days or something like that. And then they finally got the fire under control. And then after they got it under control, it reignited. And other parts of the city burned for another three days. So nine days in total, Rome burned. You can look it up. Rome burned for nine days. 10 of the 14 districts in Rome were destroyed. Two thirds of Rome was burned to the ground and in ruin. And the emperor of Rome was the one that was responsible. And you might think to yourself like, why would anyone want to do this? 
He did it because he wanted to rebuild the city to make it what he thought would be better than before. It's ironic that two-thirds of the city burned down when his plan was to build two-thirds of the city into palaces and have kind of like this palace-living kind of environment. He wanted an elaborate series of palaces built all throughout Rome. He was going to call it Neuropolis, name it after himself. But after the fire, it turns out the people of Rome were not all that on board with that plan. They were like, no, we don't want our city burned to the ground. Imagine that. They were not on board with 300 of their citizens burning alive, 300,000 of their citizens being homeless as a result. And what today equals to about $5 billion in damages so that you could build something that you think is better. Suddenly Nero was not popular anymore. So he needed to pass the buck. And at the time there was this new Jewish religious sect known as Christians. And Nero was not a fan of Christians. Now, when I say they were living under severe persecution, I mean it. Christians were murdered and they were tortured for sport and for entertainment. During gladiator matches, Nero would feed Christians to lions. He would cover Christians in wax and then light them as torches for his garden parties. And a lot more that I'm not going to go into detail about because I know that there's some kids in the room. Peter himself would actually meet his fate under Nero's persecution. He was sentenced to be crucified, just like his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A lot of people don't know that. And he did not feel, to, he did not feel like he should die in the same manner as, as his Lord. He didn't feel like he was worthy. So he was actually crucified upside down. How are you a follower of Jesus called to respond to that kind of hatred and that type of persecution. You know, before that happened, obviously Peter wrote this letter and he was responding to a lot of Christians that were asking themselves the same question. How are we supposed to respond to this? And this happens today. You read your Bible and you know how you're supposed to respond in certain situations, but there's always going to be something so incredibly specific that we're like, oh, well, I don't know how to respond to exactly that. What am I supposed to do? And at this point in time, Peter was around to answer it. So in chapter one, he reminded them that this world, first of all, it is not their home. Virgil talked about that. What was true for them is true for us as well. If you're a follower of Jesus, then this is not your home. And I'm sorry, but it needs to be said that what we endure in our world now is nothing like what Christians endured then. Some Christians need to be reminded of that. But yet, it's still a good thing to take a look at what occurs in our world and to consider exactly how we should respond when we believe and what we believe is not considered popular anymore. What we believe is not considered the norm anymore. And some people, quite frankly, see what we believe as somehow offensive to them. So in chapter two, Peter's gonna get more specific about what it means to live a life that is considered holy. And he starts off in verse one saying, get rid of all evil behavior, 
be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Other translations have it as get rid of malice. Here it's evil behavior. We could just sum it up and say sin. Okay? Get rid of all sin, all the sin in your life, all the dirt, all the mess, all the things that you don't want other people to know about. We have this phrase that I use a lot when I'm speaking to the students where I say true character is who you are behind closed doors. Who you are when no one else is around and you're on your own and you're left with your own thoughts, all of that stuff that you think that you would never share with anybody else. Whatever that is that you're probably ashamed of and that no one else knows about, that's what you need to get rid of. The message version of the Bible has a clear message. Same verse, it just says, so clean house. So clean house. Get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, all unkind speech. Clean house. That list is not an all-inclusive list. Some people are going to look at that and they're going to be like, well, I, I don't have any deceit. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not jealous of anybody. I'm good. No. This is all sin. It's all-encompassing. Peter addresses all of it here. So whatever that, that sin is that you're thinking of right now, that's on the list. And he keeps going, verses two through three. He says, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. So there are things in our lives that we need to get rid of. And in place of those things, Peter gives us something to crave. We need to crave godliness. We should crave this so that we can mature, so that we can mature in our faith, so that we can grow up. I mean, we all know how babies work, right? We all know how babies function. When they're hungry, they let you know. They cry, and they cry, and they cry, and they scream. That's how they're designed. They're hungry. They need food. They need nourishment that's rich in calories and has all kinds of nutrients in it. So they cry, and they say, hey, parent, give me what you have because I need it. And they cry and they scream. This is very real for me and my wife right now because we're like a couple weeks away from having a baby. So it's, a, it's pretty, it's like I can see it already. <laughs> they just cry and they scream. <laughs> they cry and they scream. The imagery is so real. <laughs> they can only be satisfied by something that is so beautifully designed by God himself that a woman is built to design or a woman is built to supply. Whereas the man, what are we built for? I don't know. Farmer tans, passing kidney stones, I'm off topic. So take that imagery and that need for nourishment, okay? And apply it to your spiritual life. It is not a craving. It's not a craving. It's a deep-seated hunger that we should experience. How long after you have finished reading scripture do you need to read scripture again? How long after your last prayer to your next prayer? Is it something that you just remind yourself, oh, I should do that? Or is it something that you crave? Or is it something that you need? 
I mean, this message is written to Christians. So I'm speaking this to Christians. Is this something that you need? This isn't something that you share with your non-believing friends. We're not gonna leave here and tell our friends that are non-believers that, hey, you're like a newborn baby. It doesn't work that way. What you need is some spiritual milk. They're not gonna get it. They're gonna be like, what? What are you? Okay, fair enough. If they haven't encountered the good news of the gospel, approaching them with this message, it's gonna come off as rude. It's gonna come off as presumptuous. I mean, it's definitely gonna come off as pretentious and ultimately it's not gonna be effective at all. Peter isn't commanding us to argue unbelievers into the kingdom. That's not your job. True salvation requires the miraculous work of God in our hearts. Now, on the other hand, if you are a Christian, bless you. On the other hand, if you are a Christian who has tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord, this is an important lesson that Peter is teaching all of us. Holiness is not what you get rid of. Holiness is what you chase after. Holiness is what you pursue. We have a habit of thinking of our faith as like self-control. Thinking of our faith as, or the Bible is like a book of rules and something that we have to adhere to. And what Peter is telling us here is that it's not just about what you throw away. You throw those things away so that you can pursue so that you can mature, so that you can become more, so that you can become holy and you can be what you were intended to be through Jesus Christ. Verses two or four through five say, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building in his, into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Peter is spending a lot of time in chapter one and, and here in chapter two identifying who we are. Because what we do, how we serve, how we love, how we teach, how we lead, it all flows out of who we are. I ended up spending a lot more time on this section than I wanted to because I was fascinated by how often he's using stones and things like that in his imagery, in his speech. Um, I was fascinated by how God refers to himself and how he refers to us. He is the living cornerstone and we are the living stones. Sounds like a cool band name. We're the living stones, guys. I don't know that I've ever paid that much attention to detail in this before this week. Uh, so I perused around looking for other references to stones. Um, I got this one from Ezekiel 36. It says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. So I read that and I hear a stone heart is a heart that's totally dead. Do you agree with that? A stone heart is a heart that's totally dead. And there's a contrast here between a stubborn heart and a responsive heart. 
And stone is a really good word to use for it because out of all of the imagery that gets used in the Bible, um, sticks, vines, water, uh, a stone is the most inanimate object that you could think of. It's the most dead thing. And in 1 Peter, we're reading that we are living stones. What kind of miracle do you think would have to take place to make a stone alive? Something that was dead is now alive. Ephesians 2.1 says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. But then Ephesians, uh, or ver- yeah, 2 verses 4 through 5 says, But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So let's consider this for a minute. You were once what is considered the most dead and now you have come alive. Let's go back to 1 Peter 9 through 10. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. We were once dead. Now we are alive. We were once blind. Now we see. Now we're chosen. Now we are royal priests. Whether you feel like you deserve that title or not, that's you. If Jesus is precious to you, then scripture just gave us a description of who you are to God. You are royal priests. This was something that at one point in time belonged exclusively to the people of Israel. They were God's chosen people. But in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles share the same inheritance. So we know who we are. Now what do we do with it? Did he do this so we could just sit in awe of how wonderful we are? Definitely not. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That makes me feel pretty good. I'd pat myself on the back if I wasn't going to dislocate my shoulder trying to do it. Is that why God did this? Because some people certainly behave that way. Did he do that so that we could put ourselves in a position of superiority? So that we can look down on other people who don't know Jesus those who don't have these special privileges that we have? The answer, we just went over it. It's right there in verse nine. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. We are to show others his goodness always because he called us out of the darkness. So we are to praise him We are to declare those praises to those around us, no matter what the circumstances. In the midst of uncertain times, in the middle of war, in the middle of pain, in the midst of abuse, even in the middle 
of persecution, we are to tell others about what he has done, what he has done for us through his son. How he's changed the world and how he's changed us. He did this so that you can praise the one who saved you so wonderfully. And that's very different than saying to someone, I'm right and you're wrong. That's very different than taking that sense of superiority that some of us might have. And the reason that it's very different is because it's very difficult. Because doing things this way requires you to be humble. Doing things this way requires you to be vulnerable. If his gift has caused you to be holier than thou, to look down on other people, then you have lost sight of his gift completely. It should be something that makes you humble. Because in the middle of this, you have to admit that you were extremely flawed and not worth saving, and you were saved anyway. That's the kind of humility that's needed to share the good news of Jesus in a world that has been is going, and is going to continue becoming increasingly antagonistic. And it closes out with verses 11 through 12 saying, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. You have received this inheritance from Jesus Christ and now we're hearing how we should live. First, wage war against the worldly desires that threaten to destroy your very soul and keep waging that war. Even if you fail, even if there's something that you know you shouldn't do and you do it anyway, you keep waging that war. If you fail 100 times, you keep waging that war. You don't admit defeat and you never surrender. You keep fighting against it because when the people in your life see your efforts, see you humbling yourself and see you fighting against that way of living. Verse 12 says, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God. Allow others to see the way that you are and the way that you live so that it will refute the prejudices that they may have. I mean, you might not realize it, but we have a privilege. We have a privilege of hearing and knowing this truth when there are so many people all around the world, including next door, that don't, that don't know this. We should go home and pray that others in our lives may come to know him and love him as well. You yourselves are saved, but if you're compelled to seek superiority over loving people the way that Jesus loves you. I pray that God leads you to seek Christ, that you come to understand what it means to trust him, rely on him, and depend on him, and what it means to be saved by him. 
So it is my prayer that as we leave here, that we, we pray on that. We see who those people are in our lives and outside of our lives. And that we know how to share this, that we know to become bold about this because that's how we pursue holiness. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the work that you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for everyone here and everyone watching online, um, everyone that had the opportunity to hear this message from Peter today. And I just pray that you give us boldness to share our faith with those around us. In the middle of difficult days, in the middle of our problems, in the middle of what may be judgment or hatred, that we praise your name and that others see us praising your name, Lord. I pray that you give us these opportunities and I pray that you give us an excitement to do so. It's in your son's name we pray.